The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Death was irresistible and brought all its subjects under its tyrannical sway. Grace now reigns and has absolutely established all its subjects, the whole body of eternally chosen believers, in the full position of being in Christ in the present possession of eternal life. The points that are brought forth as the final word of this chapter are that the work of God came to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is in righteousness, and that the end product is eternal life. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Life in Christ. Many amusement parks have a hall of mirrors that come in a variety of shapes. The reflection in each mirror will distort your image and make you look much different than you actually are. Because we are sinful, finite human beings, we create distorted images of God in our minds and twist His truth into error. How can we gain a clear understanding of our new life in Christ and clearly reflect His character to others. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 5 and verse 21. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Life in Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and thy faithfulness, and we praise thee that thou hast made it possible for us to approach thee, without any intercessor other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to enter into all the blessing that thou hast given us with him, and we will give thee all the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Continuing in our studies in the Epistle to the Romans, the text we are using today is Romans 5:21, that grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Justification is a complete act which carries a believer all the way through to the present possession of eternal life. And that is the end of this chapter, and a proper place for a division to have been made to facilitate our finding our way in the narrative. While the next section will grow out of what we have been studying, the next section will take us into the subject of sanctification, while now we are seeing the ultimate end of justification. Death has reigned, grace now reigns. We do not need to stress further the fact that all that we have has been brought to us by Jesus Christ our Lord. It was He, 
being in the form of God that did not look upon his enthroned equality with the Father as a thing to be grasped and held. It was he who emptied himself of the outward appurtenances of that glory and started the long road down to earth. It was he who did not abhor the womb of the virgin, who was a sinful member of Adam's sinful race. It was he who put himself within reach of the anger of men and allowed them to do with him as they desired. It was he who faced the dark moment when he should become a technical violator of the law of God by being hung upon a tree, thus bringing upon himself the curse of God for all sin. It was he who knew what it was to have the holy God turn away his presence from a Messiah made sin for us. It was he who bowed his head and gave up the ghost after uttering the loud cry, It is finished. It was he who knew what it was to descend into hell, to paradise then situated in hell, in order to release the captive believers from the time of Abel who died for his faith in the blood sacrifice down to the thief on the cross to whom he had given rendezvous in paradise for that day. It was he who knew the glory of removing paradise with all its hosts and lodging it in heaven. It was he who knew all the triumphs of the glorious resurrection. When he came out of hell, he stopped by the tomb in which they had laid his body, which had known no corruption, entered into that body again, transforming it immediately to an eternal body, no longer suffering the limitations of an earth body, and came forth in triumph forever. In that triumph he brought forth all of us who are believers in him. In that resurrection I came forth unto life eternal. In that resurrection you were raised if your trust is in him as your savior. It was then that Christ destroyed the potential power of Satan, taking from his control the entire company of those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world, and transferring them from the reign of death to the reign of grace. Our text now states that this transfer was effected in righteousness. It is very wonderful how God takes so much pains to explain to us at each step in the process of salvation that he is acting in perfect righteousness. The reason for this is that man is sinful by nature and has a distorted view of things. Man lives in a hall of mirrors where the light rays are perverted by twisted planes which reflect back to the eye a resemblance that is totally false to the reality. It is impossible for any man to think straight until he has been born again. He may think straight in mathematics. He may think straight in some of the sciences. But he is utterly unable to think correctly in any phase of philosophy or theology until he has received the new life that comes from Christ. This is why God is so patient with us taking us along simple paths time and time and again until we can comprehend the truths from the divine point of view which are without distortion. He shows us now a great group of people who were by nature helpless, ungodly sinners. Their condition had brought them to an active enmity against God. But suddenly we see the eternal God come forth and take hold of some of them and without changing them in the slightest in the first moment, counting them as being as righteous as his own divine son, putting them down on the records of heaven as being justified, 
announcing that the reign of death has ended for them and that they are now the possessors of eternal life. How, how, how can this be done? I can give you a faint parallel to this seemingly shocking act of God in an act that takes place among men once in a generation. In Tibet, the government is a theocracy and the ruler is the Grand Lama. When he dies, it is believed that his spirit enters into a boy baby that is being born at that very instant someplace in Tibet. The high priests of the religion cast horoscopes, wander over the land, and suddenly pounce upon a child, which they declare to be the Grand Lama. It has been known to happen in such a way that the choice fell upon a boy who was living in filth in a herdsman's tent, far removed from any culture or education. In an instant, this child, with matted hair and filthy body, is declared to be the Grand Lama of Tibet. In that instant, he is just as much the Grand Lama as when, years later, enthroned in his palace in Lhasa, he is in undisputed control of the entire forces of the country. In between the moment of his choice, which was totally apart from him or his people, there has been a long period of training. But from the first moment, the priests who surrounded him have bowed before him and accepted him for what he was declared to be. Now, I'm aware of the weaknesses of any human illustration, but there is a great similarity here in the work of God for us. He stooped from heaven and found us in our sin. It was he who declared us to be his sons. It was he who declared us to be justified. He said that in an instant, that instant of the cross, he saw us to be righteous. He said that in that instant the reign of death was broken for us. He said that in that instant we were the possessors of eternal life. He said that in that instant we were his heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All of this was done simultaneously and instantaneously. It was done apart from any merit in any of us. It was done on the basis of sheer grace. The process of training us for the throne life began at once. He, our God, will keep on perfecting us until the day of Jesus Christ. We must never, never confuse the process of our choosing with the process of our training. The two are entirely separate and distinct, and the mixture of the two can lead to the greatest spiritual confusion. When we look back to the hole of the pit from which we have been digged, we might be tempted to wonder if it could be true. We might be tempted to take our eyes from the God of all grace who worked in our behalf and put our eyes for a moment upon ourselves or upon some of our surrounding conditions. This would be fatal to our present peace. It is for this reason that God takes so much pains to declare to us that all that he has done has been in perfect righteousness. If you cannot make the work of God tally with human righteousness, it is because the human righteousness has been distorted. No engineer who was bringing out a new motor would attempt to measure the moving parts with a tape measure or a foot rule. The engineer knows that any yardstick that is used by man in ordinary life is imperfect for the measurement of tolerances which must be counted in thousandth parts of centimeters nor can we measure the grace of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the holiness of God by any human standards. 
This is why he points us to the cross. This is why he shows us his own son bleeding there. This is why he lifts the veil and lets us hear the eternal counsel of the Godhead where our redemption was planned. This is why we are allowed to hear the Lord Jesus Christ crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer to that question comes thundering across the universes. It is because I, your God, am righteous. It is because I can in no wise condone sin. It is because I can never clear the guilty. All sin must be dealt with completely and eternally. It is only in Christ that I can deal with your sin. I saw you in him. I took your sin and put it upon him. I hated your sin perfectly and struck it so hard that the blow killed my son. Thus it is that God speaks to us throughout the whole of his revealed word. Thus it is that he is constantly stooping to our level to explain his righteousness and to declare to us that what he did on the cross satisfied every demand that could ever arise from his own heart against sin. A man cannot take something that is coal black with dirt into the cleanness of his embrace without being contaminated by the touch. Neither could God, neither could God unless Christ had died. But now he can do it. He has found the way, the impossible way, whereby love can pass through justice. I stood before the frowning cliff, and the sheer rock rose above me out of my sight. I looked to the right and to the left, and there was not even the slightest depression in the heights. I cried to God to know how I could pass through the rock, for there was no way over or under or around the barrier that separated me from my eternal desire. And then I saw men nail Christ on Calvary. That cross lay there against that impassable rock. The sun went out and God Almighty struck from heaven. I looked and behold, I saw that the blow had killed Christ. But I looked again and behold, I saw that there was a hole through the rock and that light streamed out from beyond. That hole through the rock of divine justice was just the size and shape of that cross of Christ. I look and I see that that door is still open. I hear him call out, I am the door by me. If any man will enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. I hear him say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I hear him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I stand there before the cross. I see it as the one way through the overhanging rock. I cannot scale the cliff. I cannot go around it. Everywhere it is hard and dark. But when I come to the cross, God tells me that my sin was dealt with there and that he can now bring me to himself without contaminating himself. I wonder as I approach the door, the way, the cross, but my wonder is soon dissipated, for I discover that his blood cleanses me, that his grace surrounds me, that his righteousness enfolds me, and that he sees me as being in his son. Oh, I may still wonder if he can touch me and remain clean, but he looks at Christ and declares that he can. And if yet in my human ignorance and incomprehension, I cry to him, 
But can you do this for me and yet remain righteous? I see him point to the cross, to the blood, to his beloved son. And I hear him say to me in great compassion, I can now do this and yet remain righteous. Thus sinners may reach the throne of God. He did all this that grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. This brings us to the final point of our text, that all of this work included the transmission to us of eternal life. It is quite righteous that God should impart eternal life to believers. It must be well noted what we are saying. It is eternal life that he imparts to all believers. We have not received six months life, nor have we received ten-year life. We have received eternal life. That is a part of the superabounding grace by righteousness and through the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things to note about eternal life, and we must note them even though they may seem apparently so obvious. The one is that we receive life, living life, and the other is that the life is eternal. What is life? It is not mere existence. We are not talking about physical life. A baby is born and the doctors and nurses are very intent that life, physical life, shall continue in the tiny body. The little lungs have never breathed air up until that moment. The little heart has pumped blood as an auxiliary to the mother's heart. But now, in an instant, everything else is changed. The little heart is on its own. The lungs must, must, must take in air and expel it again, or the child will be physically dead. The doctor will slap a child to induce a sympathetic stimulation and bring the reaction of a cry so that they may know that there is air in the lungs and life in the body. But when there is air in the baby's lungs and when the pulse and respiration are normal, there is nothing more than physical life in the body. We are human beings, sons of Adam, and we are born into this world and with nothing but an alien nature unless our God does his quickening work and brings spiritual life alongside the physical life. The life of which our text is speaking is, of course, not physical life, but spiritual life. And when we turn through the word of God to find the meaning of spiritual life, we discover immediately that it is nothing more nor less than the life of God communicated to those who are standing in Christ. The Greek word for life is zoe, from which we get our word zoology. And it is used throughout the Greek writers for every phase and manifestation of life from the life of God down to the life of the lowest vegetable. It is life in opposition to death. But when this word is used in the Bible, it is employed with adjectives which do not limit it, but which expand it infinitely. When we read of resurrection life, as in John 5:29, and in a hundred places when we read of eternal life or everlasting life, it is this life with a special notation of quality. This spiritual life, eternal life, is said to be in Christ. In the opening lines of the gospel according to John, we read, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. It is later explained in the same gospel that the Father has life in himself, and that this same attribute belongs to the Son also. Very interestingly, in the gospel of John, the idea of the communication of eternal life to members of the human race is found three times. Once spoken of the Father, once of the Son, and once of the Holy Spirit. In one verse, we read that the Father awaketh the dead and giveth life to them. And then we read, even so, the Son giveth life to whom he will. Finally, the third usage of the word reveals that it is the Spirit that giveth life. 
Here, of course, is incidental teaching that shows us the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the most important functions of the Godhead, that of communicating spiritual life to men, is spoken of each of the members of the Godhead in identical terms. We conclude, of course, beyond all question that the source of eternal life is in the Godhead and that it is communicated unto us by the act of all of the three members of the Godhead. Having seen that the source of eternal life is in God, we now look at the nature of that life and discover that it is the life of God himself. It is set forth in Peter that we are made partakers of the divine nature. The life that is planted within the believer alongside his eternal existence is the very life of God. Thus we shall live, not an eternally wretched and debased existence, but a glorious life that partakes of all the qualities of the nature of God. Is God holy? We are already declared to be holy. And God is working at the process of conforming us to the image of his Son, so that ultimately our condition shall be no one whit short of our position. Is God all-wise? We are already declared to be the objects of a new creation, whereby Christ is made unto us wisdom. And it is in this new wisdom that we are able to know Christ as Lord and are able to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And we'll continue to do so until we shall know even as we are known. Is God almighty? It has been declared that all power was given to Christ, both in heaven and in earth. He in turn, on the day of his ascension, said, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And thus we are able to do all things through Christ which strengthen us. We could carry on this analogy through the various attributes of God in Christ. It would be the same in every case. We have been saved in order to be taken into fellowship with the Godhead in a oneness that is not far removed from that oneness which exists between God the Father and God the Son. It might seem trite to say that, having considered the source and the nature of eternal life, we shall now consider the duration of eternal life. But we must mention it because there are those who have imagined that eternal life is not eternal. If it can be taken away from us, it is not eternal life. If it can be lost, it is not eternal life. If it could be cast away after it has once been given to us, it would not be life eternal. The great quality of eternal life is that it is divine life, and being divine, it must coexist with the love and the grace of God. Is God changeable? Of course not. Then neither can his gifts be variable. He has told us that his gifts and his calling are without repentance. How could it be otherwise in view of the immutability, the unchangeableness of God? How strange it should be that some believers, undoubtedly sincere, should think that eternal life could be anything other than eternal. Yet it can readily be understood that if God had given us six months' life, it could not be lost in even five months and a day short of the last month. And it can readily be understood that if God had given us ten-year life, it could not be taken away, lost, or cast aside in nine years, 364 days. But thus it must as readily be understood that when God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and in righteousness, has given to us eternal life, this life is eternal. This is why Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no one, man or devil, is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And this truth is climaxed in the following verse with a great declaration, I and my Father are one. Thus it is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Thus it is that where death reigned, grace now reigns. The reign is complete, final, absolute. All of his own are in himself, and none of them has been lost or could be lost. It is for this reason that we are now to proceed to the great call to holiness that lies before us in the studies that are to follow the Lord willing. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that the Holy Spirit shall take the word to every heart. If there be those that have not been born again, speak, we pray thee, with convicting and saving power, and bring Christ to the hearts of the needy. And upon all those who are believers, may thy grace, mercy, and peace abide. To thee we give thee the glory and honor, dominion and power, now and forever. Amen. It is impossible to measure the grace of God. He declares us to be righteous. He adopts us as his own children. We can only look to the cross of Christ in wonder and gratitude. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Life in Christ. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Life in Christ, or simply request message number R5-53. We'd also like to make available to you our free booklet entitled, Who's Choosing Whom? Do you view God as patiently waiting in heaven, hoping that people will turn to Him? If so, this free booklet will open your eyes to an amazing biblical truth. Long before you chose to follow the Lord, He chose you for salvation and worked in your life to bring you to Himself. Far from creating confusion or controversy, the doctrine of election and God's sovereign grace should fill us with confidence and adoration for our Lord, who saves to the uttermost. Ask for your free copy of Who's Choosing Whom when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.